having a a guide is is a huge part of my performance, my preparation, my life in para athletics. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. You're still alive in this world that we're living in. I've decided we are, in fact, moving to Shukfustan. We're going to have some strict admission requirements. <laughs> Citizenship will now require you to be a halfway decent human being Oy. and to not be stupid. There won't be many visas issued this year, <laughs> I guess, especially not to Olympian Cleet Keller. Oh. I know. Heard so much about, oh, hey, did you see that an Olympian uh, participated in the uh, storming of the U.S. Capitol? And which... I was like, yes, I have seen the story. Please stop sending it to me because it is making me very angry and very sad. Yes. And he wore his Team USA jacket. I know, which which oh. hey, how do you identify him? By the clearly marked US Olympic team jacket. He's really tall. See, that's why my stupidity requirement stands. <laughs> well oh. Yeah. So he's been indicted and uh we'll see what happens with his case. Uh that's I, I don't I have no words. It's it's very upsetting. I do have something happier. So somebody posted about that Americans will be offered a support Brit or uh -huh. a support Canadian. Yes. So I I would like one of these <laughs> these support Aussies, support Kiwis, you know, because we could really use them. Yeah, definitely. Flame alive at pod at gmail dot com. Apply for the job. Send me some Vegemite. <laughs> have you had Vegemite? I have. You like it? No. Oh. <laughs> Ask them if any like Cadbury's or Whitaker's or something. Support kiwi. Get some. Get some good chocolate. Oh yeah. Better than Vegemite, unless it's Vegemite infused chocolate, which probably exists by today. I'm sure it does. Oh. Arrow bars. Oh my God. Let's get some arrow bars. Right. Right. Speaking of Australians. We've got a little Australian accent today. Very excited about that. Uh, we are uh, once again joined by uh, Paralympian Ness Murby, who is originally from Australia, but now competes for Canada. Ness is uh, visually impaired, and he competed at the 2016 Paralympics in the sport of discus. So when we first talked with him, we really wanted to talk with him about how paradiscus works. And like one question about visual impairments turned into a full interview all on its own as is one to do with us. I had no idea. So I hope the listeners think so too, because I had no, you think, oh, they just can't see. Oh no. There's Way processes more than that. and rules about everything. Oh man, it was fascinating. So we're talking about that today. And then uh, next week we will talk about uh, paradiscus. So take a listen to the processes that Ness goes through for the visual impairment parts of competition. Uh, Ness, thank you so much for joining us. You compete as a visually impaired athlete in throws in, in athletics. So tell us what your uh, class is, your para class is. Yeah, all right. That's a great place to start. So I'm classed as a F11 or and T11 athlete, but as a throws athlete, it's F for field. So F11, and that means I'm in the most uh, severe visual impairment class. And what's really interesting about uh, uh, visual impairment classes is we're talking about F11s having uh, the least or no functional vision. So functional vision, vision being the operative word. A few people have 
no vision whatsoever. So for example, I don't just see black. If a glaring flashlight is shone directly into my eye at close range, I'm sure it happens very frequently. It's painful and is registered, but it's not functional. And so F11s um, in this category will have shades that they're wearing and, and being in this class. Interestingly, there's actually a condition that involves um, visual hallucinatory um, input. So seeing things that aren't there and there's still no functional vision, but what occurs is distract and, and possibly you know debilitating so vision just isn't simple and f11 is that class that puts you in the most severe visual impairment do you have to get tested regularly to make sure you're still in this class I don't get tested regularly anymore. I now have a confirmed class. However, I did need to go through a, a rigorous um, and uh, replicated uh, series of, of tests for several years, especially since I come from a, an expanded sporting background. So I did this for goalball, I did this for powerlifting, and I've done this for parathletics. And now I'm in a confirmed class after having um, a series with I guess, a series with set gaps in between of, of testing field, uh, depth, uh, light perception, um, what's being registered within the, the cortical processes of the brain, etc. But I guess, you know, to, to put it uh, basically, vision isn't simple. The green I see is certainly not the green you see. And we could certainly get into a whole range of psychology around that. But um, just according to medical diagnostics, yeah, it's about going through those uh, those tests to finally get a confirmed status if your particular position allows for it to be confirmed and is not changing. How invasive are those tests? Uh, really good question. Uh, it also depends which medical system you're in. I'll start with that. Um, so I've had tests done in uh, Australia, Japan, and Canada. It depends on... Um, the age of the equipment that's being used. For myself, I've had anything from looking at charts, you know, doing the the standard put your head on a chin rest and we're going to look into it with, with lights to also having probes uh, strapped to my eyes and uh, flashing lights um, shone into it. So <laughs> it's, it's sort of one of those things that technology is moving in a similar way that um, that variability is. And so sometimes at the sacrifice of comfort comes greater understanding of what's actually happening within the, the human body. So the masks that you wear during competition, who provides those? So shades are designed to level the playing field for F11 and, and, and the T11 parameter. The shades themselves aren't actually specific. Um, but the criteria for them are. So the, the object of the exercise is to block out all the light. So like with other elements of the classification system, the criteria around the shades has changed and developed over time. And in just my quad, four years of, of the, the para-athletic cycle going around, I'm in my second quad, there have been several distinct changes to shades. So it used to be that you could wear a sleep mask, sunglasses, anything opaque that would cover over an athlete's line of vision. But then there were discussions about the flaws in having such an open criteria. So for example, sunglasses letting in peripheral light from the arms, sleep masks could be doing the same thing at the cheekbones. Um, so with this, it progressed to specifics in things such as shades. So I started using off uh, blacked off ski goggles. And so it's up to the athlete to provide their own shades, but the shades must meet the criteria. Now, if you don't meet that criteria, shades can be provided to you at the discretion of officials. However, it is not a rule. So if you show up to a competition without shades, you can be disqualified. So in my journey, um, moving towards using black off ski goggles, this has even run into some personalized judgment gaps whereby you know, I'm facing differently shaped faces of officials who are checking them and they can be rejected at the call room. So here you have that, that idea that we have to bring them, we must wear them, they won't be provided. And we also then need to meet the officials who are, who are checking them on site. So it was sort of surprising for me to find myself in a sport with so many variables because I like to have this, this, consistency, uh, preparation, and, and, and uh, constancy. So I've had the experience of showing up to a competition with shades that have been accepted at a world level that were then rejected in the middle of a competition 
at a, uh, a national level in a different country. And changing up my own shades with a second pair that I have, you know, can, can be somewhat, uh, I guess, distracting. But then when you start imagining changing them up to shades that you've never had before, that was a first experience for me. And it was at a, a Grand Prix that I wasn't prepared for. And I didn't know it could happen. And I actually had an allergic reaction to the replacement mask that was given me by the official. So, you know, not to mention that if your shades come off during a competition, whether um, it's a, a throw attempt or, or if you're running and you're in track, that means that your performance is declared void. So, yeah, better understanding the idea of the shades and the importance of them expands beyond just the object itself. Wow. I mean, it's it's like you have to have backup shades and your third line of defense shades and all of that, just so you don't have to get the... Yeah, you're right on key with that. Actually, it's really interesting that um, as you as you unpack the layers of shades, we actually get down to having gauze pads that need to be in place beneath the eye shades themselves and those can be taped into position and so this is in an attempt to really level the blade the playing field but there's also a danger in the compensatoria balance so the gauze pads certainly add to my preparation because when you're thinking about sweat mixed with gauze mixed with tape mixed with you know itchy and and, and pressing on it's it's really not fun However, when everyone is faced with the same challenges, it enables us to at least be coming from a, a common ground. And I do believe that officials are, are doing their best, especially under comp day pressure and variables. For example, I was in a call room where an athlete didn't have gauze pads. And so the officials suggested they could just tape the athlete's eyes shut to be able to permit the athlete to compete instead of disqualifying them. So because we entered that information of athletes must provide all their own shades and equipment you can see that everyone's trying to work within the criteria and adapting and variables and, and distractions are all part of parasport and certainly pushing that orthodoxy you know it, it's an idea that um, coming into parathletics for me it was surprising to find myself in a sport with these variables and that it requires so much preparation as well as a lot of cognitive flexibility adaptability and really not to mention mental resilience, just to be in a space to execute my throw. Wow. I mean, I, I get that the idea of adding gauze to the shade routine, I'll call it that, is it had to come from somewhere, but are people that worried about athletes cheating the system? That's a good question. I'm not sure whether it's entirely about cheating or whether it's also about negating the the fumbling that that happens in between so first of all to answer the first portion which is i'm familiar with these types of rules from playing goalball goalball have used gauze pads and um uh, and ski goggles as as shades so then coming forward though into para athletics there's a lot of process between the call room and to executing your throws whereby if you want to touch your shades or remove your shades at any point during a competition, they need to be rechecked. And I think it's about ensuring that the playing field is, is more on a, a common ground for people so that if you are needing to remove the eye shades, that officials can feel comfortable that the playing field is still level when they're putting your shades back on. And, you know, in, in all honesty, I'm not sure whether it's a, it necessitates to have so many levels, but I can understand where they're coming from for it. It seems like it's a perfect business opportunity to come up with these <laughs> standardized shades for our athletes. And that's a really good point, standardized. And I think what, what that unpacks is the fact that everyone has a different facial structure. So I can't just throw on someone else's shades and, and similarly they mine because it doesn't fit as comfortably. Now, when I mention goalball, goalball uses ski goggles and this idea that they are really big and they um, even uh, impair your, your freedom of movement, but goalball movement is very different to para-athletics. So to focus on para-athletics, me wearing something that's big and chunky can get in the way of me being able to activate 
a block arm in my throw. So it's about trying to cater to the individuality of the athlete. I will say that personally, the gauze pads pose a problem to me in the sense of the sweating and the the irritation on my skin. And that's something that requires a whole lot of mindfulness to be able to focus through that. And so that's something that I, you know, I, I would want to unpack and, and discuss about options. But uh, uh, certainly I, I am grateful that they recognize individuality. And now I'm sitting here fidgeting because now my eyes are bothering me. <laughs> Because we're totally. having this and conversation. Say, Please do not touch them without raising your hand and asking for an official to come over. Oh <laughs> my goodness! Oh wow! I am so fidgety right now with my eyes because we're talking about all of this. So. <laughs> yeah, and that's you know that's when you start thinking. Okay, so it, it also you need to integrate training because this isn't training with and and without the patches and shades, because it's not just about vision at least for me it's not just about the blocking out the vision i need to learn to as you say keep my hands still i mean come on we're living through covid here and how many people have discovered how much they really like to touch their face (laughs) Uh, so being on a competition field uh, as a field athlete, competitions last for over 90 minutes, and you've also got the call room time before. So it is uh, about a, a practice, and, and as you say, it makes you really tune into that part of the body. So it is learning to, to work around that, and that's where the, the parameters, everyone's doing the best they can. It's, it's a trade-off. Nothing will be perfect. But I certainly have spent a lot of time needing to work out how I manage that portion of the the distraction um, because it's not part of my performance in itself but it certainly is if I want to perform at a Paralympic level. Well I will tell you Ness that I officiate roller derby so doing this podcast I'm always on the lookout for new sports to officiate. I think I have my new thing being the official who checks the shades. (laughs) That's fantastic. (laughs) Put that on my list. The double layer on your on the shade system as I, I think I would yep. call it, really re- requires reliance on your guide. So tell us a little bit about how it is working with a guide and, and how that all works. Yes, certainly. Having a, a guide is, is a huge part of my performance, my preparation, my life in para-athletics. So I guess to be explicit, track T11s have guides and field F11s have sports assistants. The main difference to me that I understand is that the T11 guide runs the race with the athlete, whereas the F11 sports assistant doesn't throw the implement with me. It would be quite funny if the two of us released the javelin or the discus. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, just try not to hit each other. Indeed, it's, it's, it'd, it'd actually be quite uh, phenomenal, I think, synchronized throwing. But uh, in all seriousness, as an F11 VI athlete, to be at my para-athletics best, I need a sports assistant for every element, uh, competitions, training sessions, and the things that lay between. So I personally work best with a dedicated sports assistant, the same person who shows up knows our routine, understands the complexities and the nuances of of each event and and, and my needs within that. So whether we're talking at competition from assessing the call room, making sure I'm I'm seated in the right position, that they're paying attention to all the visual elements, the depth of the circle, not telling me about uh, an identified distraction that they know is going to be irrelevant as long as they take care of it, to know even when to call protest, because as an F11, I can't yell protest on a throw that I think should be counted, but that's being red flagged. You know, even at training to identify the technical feedback of my throw, I don't have the, the same uh, visual feedback to know what the release was of my discus. Um, did it go to the left or the right? Knowing how to, to frame and, and teach me movements Balancing out my lifting angles when, when we're lifting weights. I, I've i been a powerlifter and going from that kind of training to doing weights training for, for throws, it's really important in throws training that I am getting 
a level lift, uh, especially with dumbbells. So having someone who's watching that and ensuring that my body is, is learning these patterns of movements. And then, of course, there's collecting my implements, which I obviously can't do. And my guide dog refuses to do um so that's part of it and of course you've got the in-between there's there's travel to training driving it's not a good idea if the guide dog navigates orientation foreign environments like the village safety even getting to the nitty-gritty of ensuring that i'm getting nutrition you you need to go to buffets um you know navigating around uh, hotels so a sports assistant is certainly not a simple role and it really requires someone invested in my success and willing to trade off for it. Because in my situation, there's no funding for sports assistance. And yet, from my angle, the role necessitates a sports assistant to be uh, dedicated to that role, to be flexible with their work hours to accommodate not just training, but also the travel. So the way I look at it is that in para-athletics, this isn't just my journey. It's actually our journey. And, you know, my and my dedicated sports assistant are aiming for the Paralympics. We together are preparing for the Paralympic podium. And that's something that is really unique for me anyway, in terms of the nuance of para-athletics and throws. That for me, it, it is a joint journey. Are there limitations for the sports assistants in terms of, for instance, if you're competing for Australia, your sports assistant has to be Australian or gender roles or age limits or any of those kinds of things? Good question. In terms of uh, nationality, that is at the discretion of the, the national body, but I'm certainly not um, an authority on that. And being a Canadian athlete in para-athletics, my guide is Canadian. And in terms of gender roles and age, there's, there's no restrictions. The restrictions that we run into come into play whereby the differentiation between track and field. And this is something that I, that I hope over time will, will grow and stretch within those parameters that we were talking about and, and, and boxes of the IPC journey. For track guides, the IPC provides an automatic extra accreditation. And that means that the guide has an accreditation to be able to access the village, access the sporting grounds, etc. For field athletes, you're not provided an automatic accreditation for your sports assistant. So it actually falls to your national body to designate one of their um, accreditations to your sports assistant. And that's where I work very closely with Athletics Canada and the Canadian Paralympic Committee to ensure that this happens and, and moves through fluidly. Wow. Why is that? Is just the reasoning because the, the track guide person is doing the event, even though you can't do the event without your sports assistant? Whilst I'm not entirely sure of the the recorded explanation for the justification, what I have received in, in, in conversation and, and trying to explore this is that there is a, a comprehension gap and there's, um, there's a, a, a variable between athletes. So as I said, I require a designated um, sports assistant. The competitors in my class, I see them all attending competitions with the same sports assistants as well. I think what happens is that nuance between the T11 guide running the race and the F11 sports assistant not releasing the throw has left rather than a small discrepancy, a rather large comprehension gap of, of what is required. And I think that uh, arguably some people assume that anyone can do the job of a sports assistant. And as we've unpacked, this idea that a sports assistant isn't just someone who uh, provides an elbow for you to follow into the arena. There is so much more to it that goes on. And as a VI, uh, visually impaired athlete, for myself, I like to be prepared 
in the most competitively ready position that I can be. And that involves having things working like clockwork. And to do that, you can't just swap from one person to another. Right. And we'll get into this more in, when we're talking about the throws specifically. But I was watching some videos and noticed that so many athletes have different techniques on their throws and their sports assistants set them up in different ways on the pitcher in the throwing circle. So you really do need the same person who knows what you're going to need to set up. Precisely. You've really uh, <laughs> articulated that very well. That's where I'm coming from. That idea that, um, you know, you, you wind up running into to problems if you're not with someone who you have created a rapport with, that you have a, a working relationship with, because otherwise you spend time having the superficial conversations of outlining just a, a basic need, like, please put your elbow out for me as opposed to someone who knows exactly the way your, your stride length, the way you like to walk into it, where you like to stop, how they're going to set you up because they've worked with you for all the, let's say, 364 days aside from this one competition day. And so, yeah, having that, that dedicated person really makes a difference. Are there athletes in your realm who just don't have their own assistant for whatever reason? Not to my knowledge. On the, the international platforms that, and, and competitions that I've attended, the guides are repeat guides. And if someone is to change a guide, we've had a conversation um, with, for example, an athlete from Brazil, and that changed individual who becomes their new sports assistant also becomes the person they're training with all the time. Potentially, people who compete on a lower level, who are not the elite throwers, can't afford or can't find someone who is as invested to be a dedicated guide, do show up at competitions and, and just request officials to provide that, that service, that, that assistance of getting them from point A to point B. Arguably, I would say that that sets them at quite a disadvantage um, to how they're performing in training compared to at a competition. Interesting. Okay, so Allison has not asked this, and I'm very surprised this was not the first thing out of your mouth. How far do the do the guide dogs get in the stadium? Or the I didn't home? want to ask. Oh, come on, we oh, have to. That's a this really is... good question. No, it's a great question. Because <laughs> I would talk the whole hour about the dog. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right when i was in rio lexington got uh the most publicity in fact he was ranked among the 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 top 10 personalities um that affected the paralympic games and i think he was number seven not me <laughs> so yeah lexington certainly has a huge role to play um, i got interviewed uh, on behalf of uh, of lexington i i was his um attache or go-between um <laughs> In terms of how far the uh, the guide dogs get, there has been a rule instated that actually guide dogs are not allowed into the uh, competitive field of play, into the arena. So that also poses a little bit uh, of an extra challenge or, or consideration of I'm using my, my guide dog all the time. So then what do I need to take into consideration? What do I need to set in place so that my sports assistant and I can get onto the field of play and be on there for those two and a half, three hours. So often um, he is uh, on the, the warm-up fields uh, in the capable hands of a Team Canada representative or in a, a family member's um, care. Uh, but that, of course, requires a lot of uh, organization. Yeah. Because I'm just imagining all the guide dogs coming out on the field. And that would just be the best event ever. They would be chasing the discus. They would be. <laughs> they would be uh, running laps on my, the track. My refuses to, to, to chase to fetch anything. Um, but I will say the you know the note of this that not having Lexington with me on the field of play does bring about a bit of a a dampener because he plays a large role as well in my journey. And when I was a, a powerlifter, my first guide dog, Verdi, was always up on the podium with me, um, receiving the medal with me. And that's something that, um, that means a lot uh, to me. And so the podium is actually considered part of the field of play uh, in para-athletics. 
so Lexington doesn't uh, find his way up on the podium with myself and, and my sports assistant. But he still managed to be a star. Oh, yeah. He was uh, the, the star of the, the village. There were uh, two, two uh, guide dogs in Rio and both of them from, from Team Canada. <laughs> Can I say uh, another little segment about my sports assistant? Oh, yeah, of course. I want to say that um, so a sports assistant really needs to be someone who is invested in the journey. And for me, that person, my sports assistant... That's my wife. And my wife and I have worked together in sport for 10 years, from powerlifting to para-athletics. And there is a vast difference between the two sports of powerlifting and para-athletics and the assistance that each calls for. Powerlifting calls for far less, and I feel the role is interchangeable. However, in para-athletics, for me, it relies on the dynamic with my sports assistant. So... The role of a para-athletic sports assistant doesn't call for a family member, but I certainly don't have anyone else willing to accept the job description, willing, willing to accept the trade-offs, willing to accept doing this with potentially very little visibility. And so this is our journey. This is our success. We are team Fayesh Murby, and no one will convince me differently. I have not done this journey alone. I have done that with my sports assistant. And for me, my sports assistant is my wife and all sports assistant, but especially mine for me really deserves that credit. I just wanted to have that in because oh, um, sure. I think it's really important. A lot of assumption gets made when people find out it's my wife, some really positive, some you know, negative and all the space in between. And there's something to be said about this, that it's not a matter of course. People go into this, they have parents, they have siblings, they have spouses, but that doesn't mean it's a matter of course, and it certainly isn't easy. And when you're asking someone to spend that amount of time with you, I mean, my wife has to make sure that employers are willing to be on the journey too. And yeah, it's it's certainly a... Uh, a big give and when we were living on salt spring we were able to pursue this because my wife worked for the salt spring brewery and the the spca and they were willing to be on board with the journey too so they allowed her to take um, extended time off for the competitions and work around the schedule of training and that's not something that should be taken for granted um, so i do hope that uh, one day sports assistants will be better accounted for within the IPC parameters. And your wife's name is Eva. So when you switched from powerlifting to athletics, what was Eva's reaction? It wasn't in a sense a, a reaction. It was more we were both growing and learning and discovering together. I think what happened was there were a lot of conversations along the way because I will say, dare it be naive of us, we didn't realize what the differences would be in converting from from powerlifting to to paraathletics. Eva also has has done powerlifting, has ha, also throws, and we weren't so aware of what the the para realities would be. The para reality of powerlifting not being in the Paralympics also meant that we wanted. You know, we talked about my goal of the Paralympics and. Eva was on board for that, but what's really special is that as it started to unfold of, of what was really involved and, and what it would take, that Eva accepted and, and adopted and, and wanted the journey too. And, and that doesn't come easily. When you're a married couple and you work together, you need to be having explicit conversations. You need to be talking about each person. And it certainly needs to be recognized that no one's taken it for, for granted here and that we each get a say. This isn't, well, at least for me, this isn't my journey. This is our journey. And we each have had to step up and really rise to a steep learning curve. And I feel incredibly honored and lucky that my wife has been open to these conversations and this journey. And certainly together, we are tougher than we have looked at obstacles and 
determined that there is a way around them. We just need to work out how. And so I think certainly as we go along, we have done a lot of a lot of growing up from our very first competition that actually took place in, in Tokyo, Japan, from you know training in a in a back grassy alley to standing on the, um, the, the Paralympic field in Rio to progressing to world championships to really, I would say, 2019 was our year. It was not the best distance, but what it was was, for me, looking back on it and talking with Eva and going, wow, we are here, and now it's just a case of us continuing. And so this journey takes time, it takes consciousness, and it takes intentionality. And if you're dealing with javelins and there are spouses involved, you better trust each other. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I appreciate you, you recognize that because you're right. It's funny, and it's also really serious to the extent that, look, it's no problem for, for us in the sense of if we're both on the, the runway and the javelin's going forward, that sense, but also trusting each other. Me trusting that and not having had enough sight to ever understand this concept, trusting that Eva can actually see the trajectory and the, the flight of, of the javelin, similarly with the disc, so that she can stand out in the field and that she will be able to get out of the way. Also trusting that in a competition setting, as my sports assistant, that the concern for where the discus is going in terms of anyone else's parameters anyone else's space does not fall on me i can't be in my empathic mind and 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 worrying so we have been in a situation where eva was taking care of dealing with um expanding the limiting beliefs of some officials who came right on in on the field because they're like okay um f11 thrower right not gonna throw that far potentially um so they're moving in and, and eva's trying to dispute with them you need to stand further back now there comes a point when there's only a certain amount that you can do to advocate and uh and eva was taking care of that it was their choice of where they stood the javelin went out and it nearly landed on one of them but i didn't know about this because my sports assistant takes care of that and that's when we talk about this idea of your sports assistant knowing you knowing how you throw, where you tend to go if you're going out of uh, out of bounds or inbounds, and knowing when to bring into play a distraction. Is it relevant? Is it not? In a way, that's really nice because if you can't see what's going on, you don't have to worry about it necessarily. Exactly. In a way, I mean, yeah, it's an advantage. Of, yeah, I think, um, you know, I like to reframe it in ways that are advantageous and, and have a a positive spin on it of the, okay, this is my opportunity to stay focused. I think what comes up for me, um, and I, I say this, look, I am an experience of one person in 7.8 billion, okay? But uh, in my experience, I have to face a lot of limiting beliefs. And I do think if I wasn't blind, I might receive a different response from people. So if I was to say you need to step back. So because we're dealing with people's preconceptions, it's really handy to have a sports assistant advocating on that behalf. So we're talking about moving out for the javelin. We're also talking about the standard idea of needing to be warmed up when you're between throws, right? And people's preconceptions, officials being very concerned that if the F-11s are standing up and moving between throws that they might endanger themselves or others or hurt um, each other, run into an accident. You know, it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's, a, it's a safety um, OH&S nightmare, occupational health and safety nightmare. And so they, you know, want you to stay still. And that's where you, you get met with preconceptions. And it's sort of the, I can't stand still and then suddenly go and throw for my life. And, and get a medal-winning performance. So, you know, the sports assistant needs to advocate as well as being that intermediary who understands the disability aspect and who also understands all the sporting rules. And then you have the added issue of where there's concern from officials that your sports assistant is going to be coaching you, as in giving you feedback 
in between throws. So you've also got to have this, this really fine balance of knowing how to communicate with your sports assistant in a way that is not going to be seen as coaching in the sense of, I need to be able to swing my arms. Now, if you're dealing with another culture, another language barrier, etc., the technical rule that is that a sports assistant may not coach means you need to speak explicitly to each other. So Eva needs to say things like, Ness, make your circles lower because the tent is there. <laughs> so that they're aware that it's not a, Ness, lower your arm when you're doing this throw so you'll get a better advantage on your distance trajectory. So it's, it's about navigating these things. And that's why having also the dedicated sports assistant, someone who works with you all the time, who understands your needs in relation to also being used to the perceptionary barriers. Um, yeah, <laughs> it, it was uh, certainly interesting with the different limitations. And that's where you enter things like in Dubai in 2019 World Championships, it was the please sit still the entire time. Um, so that one gets handled. In Rio, there's the noise factor. Um, I actually couldn't hear Eva and she was standing directly in front of me about 10 centimeters from my face because we were happening to um, uh, be competing during 100 meter sprints. So all these factors come in. Wow. Thank you so much, Ness. Ness and Eva have qualified for Tokyo via the world champs, but they have to get through team selection and hopefully automatic selection at the Canadian Nationals this summer in order to compete at Tokyo 2020. You can follow their journey at tougherthan.com and on social. Uh, Ness is on Twitter and Insta at Ness Murby, and we will have links to all of that in the show notes. And pictures of the dog. <laughs> yes, and pictures of Lexington. Because we know who the real star is. <laughs> but it was fascinating. Oh, my goodness. Just when you talk about obstacles in somebody's way of participating in the games, you know, we, we often talk about how much sports cost to compete in. But in visual impairment disciplines, not only do you have your cost, you've got to deal with a guide or an assistant. And that's just crazy to find somebody who will make that commitment for you. Right. So it's double the cost just because you've got two competitors. It's like mm -hmm. pair skating and the relationship. Yeah, that was just, it was fascinating. Thank you, Ness. And we're looking forward to having you back on the show next week to get to our portion about discus. <laughs> what we were going to talk about <laughs> originally. All right, let's go to better places. Let's take a trip to... See what's going on with our team. Keep the flame alive. Welcome to Shukflistan. All right. Our Shukflistanis are our past guests who are team Keep the Flame Alive. First off, we'd like to send our condolences to Marnie McBean, Kathleen Heddle, with whom she won gold in 1992 and 1996, died of cancer this week at age 55. And Heddle also won gold with the women's eight in 1992. That's really sad. I I, yeah, I can't even imagine. And, and Marnie is such a, was such an amazing woman to speak to. And I can't imagine that relationship because they competed together for such a long time. Mm -hmm. And that's, mm -hmm. that's rough. And then just, you know, when you hear someone dying of cancer in this environment of illness, mm -hmm. that, you know, it was not an easy situation. Right, right. So our condolences to Marnie and to uh, Kathleen's family and friends. Pair skater Nate Bartholomew is competing at U.S. Nationals with new partner Katie McBeef. The short program is at 6 p.m. on NBCSN, and the free is at 9 p.m. on Saturday, also on NBCSN. Why can't I say that? It's too many letters. Yeah, maybe. Because they have MSNBC, time. yes, so that's all in the U.S. A, glad to see Nate competing again. I'm impressed. I did, I did see some of the program. They posted pieces of it. Oh, and? And it's nice. They're a nice pair. Oh, good, good. Looking good. And, Especially uh, for being together such a short time. Our skating analyst, Jackie Wong, was very happy to see that Nate got rid of his man bun. I never saw the man Neither bun. did I, I it... so it's probably a good thing. Oh, yeah, no. A man bun is never a good thing. <laughs> 
our book club author Andrew Marinus's book Games of Deception was one of eight nonfiction titles selected for the Young Adult Library Services Association's Quick Picks for Reluctant Readers list for 2021. And this list identifies titles aimed at encouraging reading among teens who dislike to read for any reason. And, you know... We loved that book. So. We loved that book. And that was one thing that Claire said about the book, was that, that this she... is something you could give to kids who don't like to read and get them in because it was a way to teach them some history that we really need to remember in a way through, through sport, which they'd be excited right. about. So Right. So it's easy to read to get kids excited about basketball. And then you, you're in. Exactly. So if you still haven't read Games of Deception, I would recommend picking up a copy. It's a quick read. It's a good read. Get your kids to read it, too. Nick Cunningham is coaching the U.S. bobsled team and is on tour with them in Europe. So excited. That he's he can't stay away. <laughs> no. But he loves it, too. He was so excited to be involved. He's like, I miss competing, but coaching is, is really where that's where my calling is. So that's really exciting to see. Also in the world of bobsled, the U.S. team is back on the World Cup circuit and joined the circuit in Winterberg. Our bobsledder Lauren Gibbs was paired with Brittany Reinbolt, and they placed 18th out of 18 in the competition. But it's a start. I think all of the U.S. sleds struggled, I would say, because this is their first race of the season and everyone else has had at least two, but maybe three or four races under their belt so far. So it'll be uh, tough for them. Josh Williamson is not competing in, uh, he didn't compete in this race and he doesn't seem to be in Europe right now with the team. He said on Instagram that he is in Park City right now. So he's training away. We'll keep an eye on what he is doing. At the first weekend of biathlon racing in Oberhof, Claire Egan finished 13th in the sprint. 38th in the pursuit and 9th in the mixed relay and after this weekend she was ranked 19th in the world cup standings oh and, she and i think it. i think rifey was doing well he was doing he was corner. doing pretty well he wasn't doing so well in the pursuit but did really well in the sprint and the mixed relay she got that team to like second place during her leg she really killed it in that so she's doing really well Fairly nice. And then finally, Malcom India has released a coffee table book on Shiva Keshavan called Fire and Ice. I know. We're okay, trying to so figure out how to get one. When I hear Fire and Ice, I immediately think of Game of Thrones. Okay. Because well, that's yeah. the, the actual title is A Song of Ice and Fire. So now I imagine Shiva Keshavan fighting a dragon, which he could totally do. Yes, he could. And he is kind of fighting a dragon, getting a winter sports program going, you know. I think know. About it. But that's very cool. We will uh, try to figure out how it's possible to get a copy of this. Hopefully. We oh, because it's only in released in India. Uh, yeah. Well, all, we, all they had linked to was a YouTube video of the book launch. So uh, they didn't really have any more information about the book that I could figure out. Time for our Atlanta 1996 moment. We are talking, looking back at Atlanta 1996 all year long. And this week, oh my gosh, I have a story that you would love. If you loved Abhinav Bindra, you are really going to love Leander Paez. And I'm I, ready. Yes. So he, uh, get to the, cut to the chase. He won the bronze in the men's singles tennis competition at uh, Atlanta 1996, and I listened to a podcast called The Tennis Podcast, and they've got a whole episode called um, Atlanta 1996 Relived, and they they've keep reliving other Olympics as well, and they went back and they got interviews with some of the players in the competition. So Lindsay Davenport won gold. They talked with her. They, they talked with uh, one of the doubles winners. So the longest interview in this was with Leander, and you would go crazy over this. He starts off by saying, well, when I was a kid, I used to polish my dad's Olympic medal. Like every week he would polish his dad's Olympic medal because his father won silver, I believe, in field hockey. He's Indian. So field hockey in Munich 1972. Later it comes out that he was conceived during the 
few days stoppage in play at Munich 1972. So he is an Olympic baby through and through. Wow. Yeah. That's one way to occupy those days. That's what they said. (laughs) So what I loved about Leander was that he wanted to be an Olympian so much. And he, when he was a little kid, he loved soccer. You wouldn't see him without a soccer ball anywhere. And he figured out kind of quickly that India was not going to send a team to the Olympics in soccer. So he better find an individual sport. And he found tennis. And learned and then worked his way on the tour. He uh, got into the Olympics in Barcelona and missed out on a medal for those games. And so he said for the next Olympic quad, he was going to take the year before the games. And he went down to South America and trained at altitude. And why he did that was because he did some research and said, Oh, the Atlantic competition is going to be at Stone Mountain, and that is 710 feet above sea level. So my bet is that if people aren't used to the altitude, they're going to uh, basically crash out. Yeah, none of the major tournaments for tennis are at altitude. No. Wow. So he was really focusing on the Olympics versus other people in the tour. Right, right, right. It was... Genius. And this Atlanta was also the first time. uh, Well, okay, so 1988 was the first time that tennis got back into the Olympics. And for 88 and 92, they had gold, silver and two bronzes. But for right, like they do with a lot of those kind of tournaments. Yes. But for 96, it went to gold, silver, bronze. So he really had to work harder to get that bronze medal. So the interview talks about uh, a lot about how he did that and, oh, you know, he like pulled some ligaments in his wrist and he's just like, tape me up and put me back out there. I'm winning this medal. And he did. And, you know, that is just one of those crazy moments because the country went nuts, too. He's like, I wanted to do this for India, give them some hope and something. He's like, you go back and a million people are at the airport and probably literally a million people are hanging around. Because there's so many people in the country. So his story is just one of those. I I want a movie. I want a book. I want everything about this because he is amazing. And I do not know the story. So this will be fun. So we'll put the link to that episode of the tennis podcast. Yes. In the show notes. And I will go back and listen to it. And he was conceived at Munich. Oh, my God. Well, it gets better. There's one last little detail. Oh, no. He is the first Indian and only tennis player to compete at seven Olympic Games. What? He has competed from 92 to 2016 in tennis. And he's trying to get to Tokyo. What? I know. And some of his competitions are probably doubles. I don't know exactly where he's. But still. Yeah. Yeah. And they they talk about, in the podcast, they talk about how he's the only one to get that many Olympics in a sport that isn't, like, sitting or standing, basically. Right, like, you'll see those equestrians many, many. Right. Right. And you have to be in shape to be an equestrian. That's no joke. But, you know, you're sitting down. Shooting. (laughs) Kim Rohde. She's standing. Yeah, you have to have a lot of strength and a lot of endurance to hold that rifle up for as long as you do. But you're not running around a tennis court for hours. And also in those sports, they tend to get better. Like the people who win tend to be 30 in equestrian. Mm -hmm. Right. They're not 20. Whereas in tennis, they're very young. I mean, by 30, you're retired. Yeah, because you're looking at, I mean, Lindsay Davenport comparatively was like just out of high school for the most part. She was really young in Atlanta. In 96. Yeah. Wow. I know. Well, what a There's still hope for us. That's right. Maybe I should pick up tennis. <laughs> you never know. All right. Let us move on to Tokyo 2020. Torches got put in quarantine. That's right. Oh, my goodness. The Associated Press said that they have put the torches 
that were on display back in storage, which is sad. Because they were there to give people hope. But there's a new surge. But they just gave them COVID. Right. Yeah, there's a huge surge in Tokyo. There's all kinds of concerns because we're less than 200 days out. So I think they're putting some of the more extreme measures in in Tokyo Mm because they know this is coming. They want to get this under control. Right. And all week I've been inundated with news that like 80% of Japanese people do not want the games to happen anymore. But... Tokyo 2020 president Yoshiro Mori said that a spectator spectator decision is coming likely end of February, which I think is a little ambitious. Yeah, a little ambitious, but probably March. So that's according to Inside the Games. So not much new, but just kind of rehashing because, you know, you get a few extra cases and like a few extra cases there. When you compare it to the U.S., it's not so bad. But it's still a lot of cases, and they don't want it to spread any further. But that just rehashes the, the same fears over and over. So yeah, you got to play the waiting game, and that's a tough thing. I mean, maybe the torches could have worn a mask. Maybe. <laughs> no, let's move over to Beijing. The Olympic Village that is for the ice sports is due to be finished by June. So Inside the Games also reported this. It's going to have 2,300 beds for athletes and officials. And I I didn't know that Olympic Villages had themes, but this one does. It has a theme of health and intelligence. (laughs) Did they just come up with that now? I have no idea. But like... What is, what are your other villages themes going to be? Like ambition and speed, (laughs) flowers and cookies. (laughs) That would be our village. It's true. The village in Shuklistan can have cookies and flowers. Absolutely. Oreos. There you go. Official Oreos. (laughs) Okay. So I did want to mention something about Beijing 2022 that I noticed this week they were very prescient because their mascots have bubbles on their heads oh they're they have like these uh, what for lack of a better word like these scuba helmets it's like they knew hmm got to protect the mascots that's right they're healthy and smart mascots that you will see in the village but do they have cookies for me probably they probably will Fortune cookies? I think that's too American. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, the village is due to become public housing after the end of the games. We got a little bit of Paris 2024 news. Anne Hidalgo, the mayor of Paris, has approved a 250 million euro plan to renovate the Champs-Élysées in the city center. I love Mayor Hidalgo. She is not taking anything oh, with I these know. Olympics. I know. So so this is going to be to the euro on budget. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. But one thing that really stuck out in my mind is we've talked about this before, how plans to rejuvenate cities sometimes don't happen until the games come because they want, right. the, they want the place to look nice. Right. I mean, L.A. is doing a huge public transportation project in relation to 2028. Mm-hmm. I know Barcelona rebuilt a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff. London developed a whole new section that used to be industrial. Mm-hmm. So Seoul sometimes also, yeah, gets a little bump from, oh, the world's coming. Right. So there had been a committee in Paris campaigning for a major redesign of the avenue for a few years and. Now it's happening. Why? Because you want it to look nice for 2024. Interesting. Right. I hope they don't do what we used to do when I was a kid and people would come over and you try and get the house all clean. But then at the last minute, there'd be the stuff that just didn't have a place. And we would panic it into the bathtub <laughs> and just close the shower curtain. <laughs> so there would be toys and stuff in the bathtub. So Paris, don't do that. <laughs> 
that that's our urban planning advice for you. Don't panic it into the bathtub. There you go. All right. I think we will call it a week with that. Uh, let us know what you thought of this week's show. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com or call our voicemail hotline at 208-FLAMEIT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta and keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Next week, we'll be back with the second part of our interview with Ness Murby talking about how visually impaired discus works. So as we go out to music by Archdale, thank you for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. Man bun is never a good thing. <laughs> <laughs>